Well, thank you so much, Alex Jensen, for joining us on the podcast. You got it. Happy day to speak today. I was hoping that you could tell us about zombie fish and salmon, but first, why don't you tell the Rockosophy listeners what your background is? Absolutely. Uh, glad to. So I am currently a PhD candidate at Oregon State University in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife. I've been working with the Oregon Cooperative Wildlife Research Unit there to perform research directed at management issues for recreational fisheries on Chinook salmon. And so this is work um, in the state of Oregon, basically trying to find new ways we can use information from fisheries to uh, help change and potentially improve um, the management of the resources. So that's new assessment tools, new insights, uh, looking at new ways to explore and use data that's been collected to basically get more information about what's happening with the resources and how they can be um, assessed and managed in potentially different ways. For those who are not on the West Coast, why are salmon such a hot-button species? That is a great question. There are a lot of ways to answer it, but basically salmon have been a foundational resource in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, for centuries, for thousands of years. Um, so definitely indigenous food source and source of um, cultural importance for the tribes. Um, and then more recently, it supports a large number of commercial and recreational fisheries across the West Coast. And there's a lot of layers to it because we're not just dealing with a single species of salmon as well. Salmon in the Pacific Northwest can refer to any number of species, including coho salmon, chinook salmon, uh, chum, sockeye. So there's four or five major species. The one that I'm focusing on, the Columbia River, is chinook salmon, or king salmon, as it's called, mainly due to the large size that it gets. Because of the size and the fight that it puts up, especially among recreational fishermen or anglers in the Columbia River, is a, a huge source of interest and revenue for local communities as anglers across the state and from other states as well go to catch the fish and bring home some meat. Can you describe fishing for salmon? Because I know you went, you've gone at least once in the estuary. Yes. If, was that you? Okay. <laughs> so um, <laughs> what is salmon fishing like that gives them this incredible reputation? Yeah, that is a, it's really interesting in the Columbia River. Um, especially at the mouth. So the system that I'm working in is in the estuary of the Columbia River. So instead of thinking like a typical river, you know, a few hundred feet across, kind of slow flowing, think of the Columbia River estuary as like a mini sea. I mean, it's uh, miles long, the bridge spanning, the story of Mangler Bridge that spans the story to the Washington, on the Oregon side, to the Washington side, right at the mouth there, is a huge, huge construct, like it blows the mind. So this is a big body of water. And the anglers that go out to catch fish in the system, oftentimes they basically have to have boats that are ocean ready. So you have uh, relatively large motor boats that are going out with anywhere from like one to, you know, six to seven anglers. And then basically they're going out and they're trolling. Um, so draining lines behind them with spooners, flasher, spoons, flashers, sometimes bait. And then basically hoping to lure a salmon to bite onto their line. And then the fight is on. And so basically, it's a huge source of excitement for anyone on the boat. 
as soon as one fish gets on, everyone else reels up their line. Everyone's tuned in to what that angler is doing. So it's a really cool process. It can be many minutes before the fish is brought in. And then, as you alluded to with the sea lion story, there's an added level of uh, excitement, you could say, in the Columbia River as well, because there are sea lions that also like to eat salmon. And so what sometimes happens is you get a fish on the line, the sea lion pops its head up, sees that you have fish on the line and gets interested. So it can turn into a race, actually, against the other mammals for something else takes it off. So it's a, a huge source of excitement, and then when you land it, I mean, that fish is, can be 10, 15 plus pounds. So it's a, it can be a big fight, beautiful fish, and yeah, it's an experience unlike any other that I've had in terms of recreational fishing. What's also interesting is that each major river basin basically has its own somewhat or entirely distinct genetic group that exists there. And so each group of fish within each major river system basically has its own unique adaptations and genetic history or evolutionary history that's uniquely adapted to the system. So Chinook salmon, in terms of their management and their conservation, are actually considered on these like population groups or these stock groups um, up and down the range instead of one big thing. So although like up in Washington, those Chinook salmon may not be connected necessarily to the Columbia River, they're probably managed separately because they have those unique adaptations, but they're all kind of this one big agglomerated assemblage that's being managed up and down the West Coast. Is it being managed differently? Um, I would say the goals are the same across all the agencies, but you know, a challenge that comes with Managing a species that occurs across state and country lines when you consider the United States and Canada is that in each region you have a separate regulatory agency. So whether it's California, Oregon, Washington, you know, they're, they're maybe working together and they actually, Oregon and Washington work really closely together with the Columbia River stocks. But you know, they're kind of working with their own local groups and sometimes with their own local priorities. There's unique challenges. Um, affiliated with each of them. So they're all working towards the same thing, which is basically sustainability of the stocks, trying to have some sort of access for fishermen to extract some of that resource as well. But how they go about it, you know, whether it's harvest management, whether it's hatcheries, whether it's habitat improvement, um, looking at the dams, it really depends on where those fish are and what regulatory agencies are acting on them. And there is a lot of range just from altitude alone you leave the measurements of the gravel and the distribution on the bottom of the rivers and then the streams and the mountain rivers. It's just a huge system as well. It'd probably be difficult even if they were one organization. Right. Consider the Columbia River, which has a single river system. I mean, the fish in there go through three different states, depending on where they're going to spawn, whether they're up in Washington, up in Hanford Reach, or in the Snake River, or in a lot of the lower river tributaries that occur in Oregon and Washington. You just have a lot of different types of habitats, a lot of different groups, which just makes it you know, even more of a challenge to keep everything straight and keep meeting the goals that are set. What are the goals of the project that you were conducting? Um, I am in a unique position to develop new insights, pieces of data, and potentially, potential management tools for that uh, estuary fishery on Chinook Salmon and the River. And so my 
project goals or priorities are basically were largely self-determined. So I spent three subsequent Augusts, starting in 2017, doing sampling of shook salmon that are pulled into the marinas and ports by recreational anglers during the fishery to look at ways we can maybe tell these fish apart using their visual appearance. And that can help provide new sources of information because if you can tell what group of, what group of fish belongs to by calculating some simple measurement that doesn't require a pre-existing egg, uh, you can get a lot more information about what types of fish anglers are harvesting in these systems potentially improve estimates of harvest and then the decisions that come out of that. And then everything else is identifying areas of interest for me that also can help the fishery. So uh, briefly, one thing I'm working on currently is looking at how we can use historical creel data to inform what drives angling behavior in the system. Because the more we know about what the people, the humans are doing in the system, the more we can understand how they're affecting the fishery, how they're affecting the fish, and whether that can change how we think about, you know, setting season length or changing or some of the regulations that are put in place. Um, and just to provide some context, creel data is basically just data collected by samplers, in this case, say the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, that interact with anglers as they're coming back and collect data on the catch, you know, basically asking, uh, a boat that's coming back, how long did you fish, what did you catch, what did you release, um, and just getting information about the fishery. But there's years and years of these types of data sets. And so what I'm really interested in is how can we use some of this historical data to inform what's going on now and potentially give us new insights that we can use moving forward. How do you estimate that? The personal biases, like maybe there's one person that's pickier than somebody else? Mm-hmm. That is a great point because that you know that aspect of it, the you know the very personal side, the what are your opinions of this fishery, what's your background, how does that shape your opinion? That's something that hasn't been addressed at least with the system that I'm working on specifically. Um, but I think that's a really important point because when you think about a group of anglers, say that you have you know five thousand people fishing over the course of a week or ten thousand. They're not all the same. They're not all fishing for the same reasons. They're not all motivated by the same things. And the more you can do to understand why people are fishing, what's motivating them to fish, and you know what they'd be willing to accept in terms of different regulations or different season structures, the more you can really fine-tune what you're doing to what's effective and what people would be happy with. Um, so I think that's a really interesting aspect to look at. But what I'm trying to do is the information that's available is definitely a little less precise. So it's more of a core scale, how many people are fishing, where are they fishing, and then trying to do some kind of mathematical evaluations of trying to figure out why. So we're, we don't really have information, you know, their personal preferences. What we can do is say, we know more people fish late in season than early. What's driving this? Are people fish choosing to fish when the fishing is good? Is there good communication among anglers so they're showing up more when they hear about higher catch rates? Or is it just something that, you know, they book their vacation time around? So changing the catch rates isn't going to change the number of people who show up to Zoria to go fishing. So it's more of the thousand foot view instead of the ten foot view, trying to get at some of these broad trends and maybe see if there's interest in doing some of the more detailed questions. I just want to see the textbook that this is going to be published in 
with the really complex <laughs> formulas with the squirvy forte sign. Yeah, uh, you know, the, the dissertation that hopefully come out of all of this and very few people will probably read. Yeah, but no, I also think it's really interesting to think about how the day is collected. So the two states that kind of co-manage the fishery are Washington and Oregon. And they, I think it's since the early 2010s that they've really stabilized or formalized how they collect real data. So everything's been collected the same way since the early 2010s. The point where you can go back to 2012, 2013, 2014, and compare that data directly to what's going on in 2018, 2019, 2020. You know, we're talking almost a decade of, you know, daily data with a lot of sampling effort. So you're talking thousands and thousands of records of data that are primarily used to determine in-season decisions. So like what's going on on a day-to-day basis and whether the season needs to be extended or shortened. What I think is cool and what I've touched on before is that now you have an eight to 10 year historical record. You can look at what's changing, what's driving it. You can look at the bigger picture items as well as the you know the year to year issues that drives a lot of the local concerns. Do you have an idea of what an improvement would be made to the salmon fishing schedule? I mean, you've worked in government entities. You know that everything runs on a spreadsheet or an Excel sheet. Of, if we make it into this threshold, we'll probably do this legislatively or try to push this change in the policy. Are you interested in instigating some kind of policy change ultimately, or are you just trying to establish whether or not there is a pattern? If someone gave you a really fat grant and they said, Alex, do your thing, man. Right. What I'm really interested in personally and what the project is really tied to is getting information that can directly improve management efforts and decision making. So that's a really important part of it. It's not important just to know for the sake of curiosity what's happening but tying it to on-the-ground concerns. So as an example with the kneeling behavior, if you can get an understanding of what's driving potentially the willingness of people to show up and fish, for example, in the estuary, and you know that if you implement a certain regulation or for weekends coming up or the country starts to rise, that you can expect an increase or decrease in effort, and you can quantify that to say, well, it's a weekend, so there's going to be a 10 or 20% boost in effort no matter what we do. You can use that information to potentially help decision-making. Because if you're looking at harvest numbers kind of approaching a threshold that's been set, you've got a weekend coming up, catch rates are rising, um, and weather's looking really good, and you have a quantitative sense of, well, A, B, and C happens, so we expect effort to rise by 20 30%. Then you can have a better understanding of, well, if you have 30% more people, you're going to hit that threshold a lot more quicker. Maybe something needs to be done. So, like, this type of work may not translate directly into policy. That's not really my place. I'm basically, you know, trying to come at things with a new perspective. And as a PhD student now candidate, you know, I'm in a unique position to have the freedom and the time to look at these data sets in new ways. Kind of just explore what the data have to tell me. So I think that's where... I'm really motivated to work and where I'm excited work can go is providing insights and then new tools to the people who are making decisions. And then hopefully as a result of uh, collaborating with them and, you know, talking with the people who make decisions and who are on the ground doing stuff, you know, maybe eventually that gets incorporated later on. But in a more 
abstract sense, I think what I sit back and think about is, like, I have the opportunity to kind of think about the entire system and how it functions. And I have the freedom to use data sets to think of it, everything in the bigger picture. So, like, angling behavior, how does that fit into decision making? How can we use new data collection methods to improve harvest system models to all decision making? And how, how does all this kind of wrap into one bundle? You know, one aspect of fisheries I think is really interesting is that it's a, a mingling of a bunch of different aspects. You have biological side with fish, you have the human stakeholder side with the recreational or commercial anglers that are going after this fish or the resource. Then you have everyone on the management side who's collecting data, who's trying to figure out what's going on with the harvest, and then making decisions to meet some of those harvest and conservation goals. And so like one thing I'd like to do eventually is create a type of decision model that can look at, well, A, B, and C happen, given all we know about the system, all of these processes and all the levels of uncertainty, you know, what is the, what could be the best policy in terms of more or less restrictive harvest regulation and season length? And I think just the challenge and ability to think about the entire system and having the time to, you know, do it justice over the course of the PhD here at Oregon State has been fantastic. Any final thoughts on salmon? You had mentioned a previous interest in uh, hearing more about the zombie fish. Yes. So I can provide a quick description of those and get into the kind of biology of salmon. This might, this is definitely like a more of a colloquial term, but mm-hmm. zombie fish is a, a reference to the fact that the Pacific salmon species are largely similpares spawning, is the name for a fish that only spawns once. Uh, which means that when they go and reproduce, they basically have one shot. You know, they, they store all the energy that they can, they go up through the river, the river headwaters, to their rivers, and they put everything they have into reproducing, and then they die. So it creates this really interesting physiological or like biological thing to watch, in which these fish, when they're in the rivers after post-spawning, or maybe they didn't get a chance to spawn, their body is failing them, they're starting to decompose, but they're like basically still alive. So these fish post-spawning, uh, the skin or the appearance of a typical Chinook is like a nice white silver and they kind of get darker and darker as they go through spawning but by the time they're about at the verge of death their skin gets completely black and basically their muscles their skin everything starts failing and decomposing the the kind of the neurons firing in the brain but like nowhere near what they used to be so you just see like basically these these husks of fish just like staring at you they're still alive, they're at the bottom of the riverbed, but they can't really move, they're falling apart. But like, they're still alive, they're still seeing you, or maybe they're just wandering aimlessly in the river, but there's, you know, nothing left. And so those are fish that, you know, have hours to maybe a day or two left to live. But it's just so fascinating because it's part of their natural life history, is they get one shot to reproduce, they put everything into it, and then they basically trust that the next generation of fish is strong enough to replace them. So, yeah, they're a wild thing to look at if you go check out rivers where these fish are spawning. Especially, you know, a couple of weeks after the peak spawning, you'll see these, like, black husks of fish still kind of just aimlessly watering through water column, 
you know, after they've kind of served their life purpose. So apparently the meat of those fish is also toxic. If you eat them late enough, there's a story about an early frontiersman out here in Spokane that I heard the river keepers Spokane meeting or something. And if you missed it literally by two weeks, everyone disappeared and the frontiers people came in and fed it to their dogs and ate it. And all the dogs died. <laughs> and like people got so sick. And the indigenous folks were like, well, yeah, zombie fish. I heard that and I just had to know what the reason was. Yeah, absolutely. And it's because, you know, they're basically rotting. It's, you wouldn't eat a, you know, a, a slab of steak that's been sitting out for a week. And like, I mean, they, and they also get super infected. And so what happens is that they get closer to spawning, they put all their energy into reproduction, and they don't support their immune system as well. So they get, you know, real with parasites, bacteria. So like everything basically goes sideways for them all at once, once they finish up. Okay. Well, do you pocket rocks at all? Had any good rock hounding in Oregon? <laughs> um, you know, I'll be completely honest. So you and I met back in 2017. We were both in Astoria for separate field projects. And that was the... Uh, you know, aside from an informal introduction to earth science and rock structures back in the early 2010s, uh, that was the first time I'd ever really gotten into rock, uh, rock hounding and, you know, being interested in going out collecting and seeing what's out there. But it was great. Uh, you know, I had a blast doing that. And I think that this is still back in 2017. And, you know, I think the, the cool thing that we got a chance to do was going out and looking at Thunder Heights. This was out in middle to eastern Oregon. I mean, that was phenomenal. Um, basically, we went to a, I'm not sure if you call it a mining operation, but a place where wherever you pull out, you basically pay for it, but they have like these big sites already prepped. And so we did some uh, hard rock mining, kind of trying to chip out some of the, the more resistant Thunder eggs, if we're looking at them later. And then, you know, some that were just blowing off the ground. But getting them cut was, like, the coolest thing ever. The fact they just have, like, this little mud ball that looks like there's nothing of interest. You cut it inside. And, like, the brightest colors and shapes and core structures inside is, like, the perfect collectible thing to keep slash give out as Christmas gifts, which I definitely did. <laughs> Was it well-received? I think so. Uh, I still see it around the house whenever I visit home. So it's you know still circulated, at least as a, as a paperweight, to my knowledge. They are so picturesque. I didn't know this at the time, but... So when we got them cut, they weren't polished to, like, a glass finish, you know? <laughs> but they are also flush enough, they're smooth enough to create a genuine color. You don't have to rub, you don't have to rub oil on it or anything. Richardson's Ranch actually invented the saw that can do that. And they're basically the only people that use it and that have it. So they really have narrowed in on the attraction to these things, which is crack them open and it's basically a big rock trading card or something. Yeah. Was that the place that we had gone to that did the cutting or is that a different place? Richardson's Ranch. Yes. They, yeah. they have an in-house cut and there wasn't anyone in front of us, so... Normally, you might have to, like, right. drop them off and have them mailed back, but 
Yeah, the rock yard was also super terrifyingly rich in rocks from all over the world. (laughs) (laughs) That was impressive, the the diversity that they had out there. Did we go to Salmon Creek too, or was was that the beach? Did you go to the Fossil Beach in Astoria? I feel like you went to Salmon Creek. did not, but I was part of the excursion that went up into Washington, a little bit east of I-5. Yes. Those those uh, iron deposits, is that correct? Yes, they were supposed to be fossilized poop, but I don't think they are. They're just fancy concretions with iron, yeah. That's right. And then the, the carnelian agates. Anyway, now where I'm going, we have the Lake Superior agates which I'm very excited to get into, but I also am going to kind of miss the solidly yellow carnelian agates that we've got out here. It was a cool thing. <laughs> you just got to make sure you bring enough with you that you can just barter for the, the local options. Do they have them in Michigan? Lake Superior agates? Um, if you go to Upper Peninsula, I'm sure they do. Huh. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the, yeah, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan borders Lake Superior, and I would imagine they would have the same kind of wave action necessary to produce the agates. But if you want an example of how like people, how much people like agates, <laughs> there are local high school sports teams that call themselves the agates or the Aggies. Where? I'm not sure if you wear it that or not. No. This is in northeastern. Minnesota near Duluth. <gasps> Maybe they're not still called that, but they were definitely called the Aggies or Agates at one point. Oh my gosh! If that's, I wonder if that's inhibiting. Oh, I'm that's. I'm gonna have to write that one down. Like, <laughs> I've been just sitting around looking at my address and looking at things nearby that I can walk to and not necessarily die of the COVID. Uh, <laughs> so, what is your what is the appeal of Thunder Eggs to you? the pattern of them. I know that the cutting open is very cool because of the juxtaposition of the interior and exterior, but what do you think is cool about them? Well, I've always been a big fan of like the hunt or the challenge of finding something that not everyone can. And so like, as an example, I'm a big fan of mushrooming. So, you know, going out and, you know, finding places people haven't found before and bringing back delicious mushrooms is nice. And I think that's, you know, it's similar to, to rock hounding is you're kind of trying to find new places or do something people haven't done to find kind of these hidden treasures. Like I remember chipping away at like a hard rock for like, felt like hours trying to get like these little, you know, the tiniest little thunder rings out. But like the sense of like accomplishment, if you can do it and find a really nice one, I think is really satisfying. That's you know maybe not thunder eggs specifically, but you know in general that type of that type of um, the hobby is really nice. And I think the other aspect is the the unknown maybe or the mystery, the, the sense that you know you look at it from the outside and you're like, well, I hope it's cool on the inside. But I guess we'll find out in like an hour, two weeks, depending on how long it takes to get cut. So and like you know it's just a I'm not good enough, so for me, it's a coin flip. Whether it looks awesome or kind of like, eh, it looks like the others. So there's that sense of like anticipation, I think, that's unique. You, you know, you basically no idea what you're going to get, even after you collect it, until it gets cut. 
beautiful 100 and actually there is no more than 100% but 100% jive with it man (laughs) it's been wonderful having you on the show if you have any shout outs you'd like to make for anyone or final thoughts alright I really appreciate the opportunity to come out and talk about fish I could keep going on and on if you gave me the time and to think back on the rock hunting memories from a few years ago that's something I need to get back into. Sweet. Well, man, I've got a book for you, but... All right, well, <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Excellent.